Welcome back for another episode of Why I'm Anti-War. Today I have a guest named Joe Shanley. He uh, made the transition from, a very logical transition that I couldn't agree with more, from caring about the environment to recognizing that if you really care about the environment, you have to oppose the wasteful war machine. So I hope you enjoy this one. Peace. Hi, Joe. How you doing? Hey, good, man. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks to have you, too. Uh, thanks for reaching out. Um, this is Joe. Um, Joe Shanley on Joe J. Shanley on Twitter. He reached out to me. He's a uh, writer on Substack, and he's a uh, history and politics, and mainly focused on history, politics, and anti-war issues. Right, Joe? Yep, that's it. You can find me at uh, www.openbookreport.com. Cool. Um, yeah, I think you reached out, uh, kind of when I first put out the all call for more people to, uh, join the show. So like I said, I'm glad to be kind of, it feels good to be back and doing it. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to hear the one I put out today. It's not a, not a, I didn't get the editing. I want, I have to relearn how to edit, but, uh, so usually I'm, I'm, I'm going to, everyone knows, I think I like to try to cut them down into segments that are kind of digestible, but, uh. We'll go with what we can get. <laughs> Sounded pretty good to me, man. Uh, I usually just leave long form audio on for a long time, and yeah, it worked out. I listen to most of it, so cool. yeah, I like uh, I like the interview style. Great, thanks. Uh, well, um, I guess I you know always like to start kind of how you began to think about war, or how you started out in the beginnings. Um, what was your sort of upbringing around those thoughts? Were you always anti-war? Or did you kind of start out one way and develop along the way? Yeah, so I was always anti-war. Um, I kind of had the Dunning-Kruger effect going on when I was younger, though. Uh, another way somebody put it was when the bonfire of knowledge, like if you if you look at your collective knowledge as like a fire that grows over time, it illuminates the darkness around it. And you begin to know as you become more learned about certain things about all that you don't know and all the things that you're really clueless about. So uh, from a young age, I was I was six years old when 9-11 happened and eight years old when Iraq War II happened. And um, so the issues really came to me uh, around like being a teenager. Uh, a, a couple things happened at once for me. Um, I became increasingly concerned about the climate crisis that was happening and um, sort of this apocalyptic, almost religious style hysteria about the end of the world through environmental uh, destruction. And um, that to me sort of took a, the, the forefront in my mind because, you know, I sort of bought into a lot of the ideas about uh we're we're reaching certain precipices that we can never look back and we're on the edge of a sixth mass extinction on the planet's life and all of that um so i kind of geared the earlier part of my life uh as being an environmentalist because i saw that as the most 
pertinent issue that was an existential threat to humanity. And I still believe that that's true to some extent. Um, but as I became older and really became ingrained as uh, a progressive when I was younger, um, I was a canvasser for an environmental organization for a few years. Um, I I'm based in uh, Long Island, New York. And uh, I, I went around, knocked on thousands of doors for environmental issues, uh, upgrading sewage infrastructure and um, removing microplastics from waters and things like that. So I, I was really um, felt like I needed to do something to contribute positively to the the forward momentum of humanity in a way that didn't uh, contribute to the our self-destruction. And then um, it's hard to say when exactly it happened. I think the COVID arc was a big waking up call for me, not only for what was happening with that, but um, that was really when I became aware of the extent of government corruption. And then you, um, you know, around 2020, 2021, I started really understanding things like the war in Yemen, the war in Libya the environmental impact that the military industrial complex uh, creates um, and all of the other costly things that come with running a world empire um, that uh, our tax dollars go to that I wasn't even really aware of. So the arc was kind of like I'm a young progressive environmentalist that wants to stop uh, you know, humanity from entering into a catastrophe to understanding over time that no, actually, the real more pertinent catastrophe was uh, us pushing closer and closer to World War Three or Russia. Uh, I don't know if you saw the report that came out, but 4.5 million people have died as a result of the post uh, 9 11 terror wars. And uh, so once you begin to understand those sort of things, I think it's a very sobering moment about the U.S. military industrial complex that most progressives honestly just don't take seriously enough. Yeah. And there, you know, I'll say, well, a few thoughts. I mean, first of all, you know, even when you're when you're saying you came up and you were concerned about the environment, I mean, I I care deeply about the environment. And I think there's a there's a not a misconception exactly, but I think there's a lot of people of all perspectives who want the don't want to trash the environment. You know what I mean? That's never what um, I mean. Some people there are different, and even when you're saying your activism, it's like, well, you don't you want wastewater handled properly. I mean, I live, you know, a little bit further south than you in Baltimore, and we've got a wastewater treatment plant that's just a disaster, an environmental disaster. And I'm at, it's just aging infrastructure. And there are a lot of people of the progress, uh, you know, who, you know, when I work with some folks here in Baltimore and in Annapolis that are um, uh, veterans for peace chapters and de uh, denuclearized and they, the environment comes first for them. I mean, they, the little that we did, we crashed a, uh, a parade there was a the military bowl parade. We crashed that, and their um, their float was all about how the you know militarism affecting the environment. You know that's what they're so the two tied. There's a great that's a great 
direction that a lot of people come from is recognizing um yeah first there's nothing wrong with recognizing that you know that in your area water is being discharged that isn't being treated properly and it's destroying the environment and there's no reason to shy away from that it's it's the truth that we're you know not doing great by uh by our oceans and then yeah when you start to realize that especially I, I could see you going from being concerned about human catastrophe um to recognizing you know this this extinction level events that people could, are concerned about it's like well you know we might not even get there if we manage to just blow each other up yeah you know? exactly i mean <laughs> uh something like a nuclear exchange could threaten the very existence of of humanity in a in a couple minutes um let alone decades or centuries that it would take from a climate catastrophe um and so you know being really concerned about this at a young age i thought that uh progressives and the left generally was the only one that was taking climate change or uh the environment I, I like to call it the the climate crisis because it's a lot more than carbon emissions or anything like that. You know, like you said, it's all about pollution and um, a variety of factors coming together that really equal uh, a lot of not good things happening for the future. But uh, that so the left was the only one in my mind when I was younger that took these things seriously. But then you begin to see, like you mentioned, the cost of the U.S. military-industrial complex on the environment. Um, there's a substack by uh, Stephen Semler. Uh, the U.S. military-industrial complex pollutes more than 171 countries. Um, if the U.S. military was a country, it would be the second largest uh, contributor to carbon emissions next to China. Um, so when you consider all of the other things that the military takes away from people uh, on top of the environmental pollution, so that is uh, our personal freedoms with things like the Patriot Act or the National Defense Authorization Act, um, or you think about uh, the biggest part of our national budget, right? Um, whether you think this money should be taken from taxpayers to begin with or not, uh, the fact that we take it all and we put it towards um, unjust wars that are predicated on lies, and they all are predicated on lies, as you know, preaching to the choir here, but um, it, it really paints a picture of the biggest existential threat to um, Americans right now is uh, within. It's an internal threat. And um, it's not like these people are intentionally maligned. Um, I think sometimes they can be, but I think it really comes from a rotting intellectual idealism about um, American exceptionalism and the unipolar force in the world that we're still hanging on to. Um, that we are increasingly uh, finding out that we we can't hang on to, whether it's um, China's growing influence in the Middle East or Russia's growing influence in Africa. Um, you know, we, we, we think we can hang on to an idea where uh, a world where America calls the shots. 
but that's increasingly less so. And the attempts to hang on to it have led to things like the disastrous war in Ukraine or, you know, um, those sorts of fights for geopolitical hegemony lead us into things like the civil war in Syria or the uh, overthrowing of Gaddafi in Libya. And these are the greatest mistakes of the 21st century, in my opinion. Um, I don't really think anything else even comes close. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm look. I just I pulled up. Um, obviously, this will be in the show notes link, but I have the article from Stephen Semler pulled up myself. And you know, just to kind of dovetail, you know, you might it it goes it it's kind of it's almost more mundane and at the same time more horrifying than you think because I. You know, you, when you hear you, you hear what's funny is you hear a lot of hay made about, say, like burn pits, right? From the perspective, when you're saying the American exceptionalism part, from the perspective of, well, we have to take care of these veterans. And I, having been on, you know, f- well, four bases, spending a lot of time, but also every other base did this too that I ever went to overseas. You know, you you have a bulldozer, dig out a ditch, and then every all the trash goes in there and. Every now and then, someone has to climb in there and stir it up and, and add more kerosene to keep it on fire. You know what I mean? That's every, that goes from, you know, lithium batteries to, um, you know, cans of beans that the cooks don't want to serve you or, you know, every everything just goes into this burn pit. And there you are 50 feet away, downwind, sleeping all day and night. And it's, it's, it's de rigueur. It's the, it's, and then you get on a ship... Um, when I was on, I didn't know this until I was on a ship. What they do, you know, the anything organic theoretically just gets cast over aside periodically, and anything plastic gets melted down into this hockey puck about four feet around and then thrown off the back. They melt, they put it in some kind of heating compress, compress, and anything that's plastic that's trash just gets compressed into like a hockey puck about yay big. And then that goes over the side too, and it's oh, it's okay because it'll sink to the bottom. You know what wow. I mean? You That's know what I mean? Incredible! I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so when you know when it's saying like pollutes more than 171 countries, we're talking about it's that, and then it's just the constant aircraft. I mean, there's so many military aircraft. I mean, the biggest thing is the ships and aircraft that burn jet fuel 24 seven. You know, a lot of the. Um, destroyers all, all all the generators on bases all of those are just burning um you know kerosene diesel fuel right um 24 7 and it's it's tons and tons of energy just being burned up um just to move boats through the water um because they but it's incredible yeah. and consider that the initiatives for the so-called environmentalists in Congress, um, don't take these things into account often enough. I mean, I did a piece on Bernie Sanders uh, called Bernie Sanders Sold Out to the War Party. And it goes through every war since Kosovo up until Ukraine that he has supported. And now there are some times where, like, let's say he voted against um, the Iraq War II um, authorization of the president to do to do so. But then he voted um, for a um, a statement in Congress congratulating the president on his job well done um, in Iraq later that year. Um, he voted to fund the Iraq war three times 
And all you have to do is put a little something in a bill that they want to vote for. And they, you know, like a hundred million dollars to go to veterans, which sounds great. But when it's part of a $447 omnibus bill that goes to ultimately support the military industrial complex, you've just became a lackey for the war machine. You know, you're, you're representing as this force against it and this force to say hey we need to wake up and save the planet but at no point will you ever question the environmental impacts of supporting the war in ukraine or the f-35s right? at your uh, vermont um national exactly Guard. yeah he voted you know? to give 1.5 trillion dollars to lockheed martin mm-hmm. this is this is the guy for this is the socialist guy for peace you know, so it, it pisses me off, frankly. And, yeah. um, you know, this is something that I try to point out to, to people around me. Be, everyone in my purview kind of uh, focuses on the domestic aspect of politics and is always fighting over issues like abortion and gun control and just debates, which to me could seem to go on forever. And what gets sidelined is debates about foreign policy and the the military industrial complex. Um, Great conversations and questions like we're asking now about like, what are the environmental impacts of these wars, especially when you span them out for over, um, uh, you know, tens or hundreds of years, they can't really be measured. Yeah. And, 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 And like you said, it's not just the wars, it's the constant global presence. I mean, just to like, it, it takes the you know it's it, it's continuously keeping ships and aircraft buzzing around the globe burning jet fuel constantly um that's what we're doing that's and, and that's what we, that's the empire we, we you know we maintain is and yeah it does get shuffled to the side and i think you know for those out here that you know out there you know for anyone listening you know if you're concerned about the environment there are people um you have a lot of great stuff and I'm pulling links here and there and I'll pull more, but there are good places to refer people to kind of look to see that this, it it is local. And it also is, you know, it's the uh, Eisenhower speech too. It's, it's every, every destroyer built is, uh, is another 22 schools or a sewage treatment plant that isn't updated. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. It's, um, there's all, you know, foreign policy is domestic policy what we do overseas comes home to us in so many ways um and people we have this you know you say american you say american exceptionalism and it is this like luxury of ignoring it but it, you we, we're losing that luxury because it is it is affecting us it does home, come home and um yeah so i wonder uh i'd love to know if you can recall you know, what were, so if I'm, you know, understanding correctly, I think I, you know, you kind of came and you started out very concerned about the environment and you kind of mentioned the broader arc, but I'm wondering if you are able to recall what things people mentioned to you, who you spoke to, who you heard speaking, what, you know, what literature you came across that made you make the connection from your concern about climate and the environment to the wars uh well 
I had known for a while when I, as soon as I saw when I was a teenager, the pie chart of where American taxpayer dollars go. And you see that overwhelmingly it goes to the defense budget. Um, you know that there's something wrong there and there's some sort of corruption there. Um, and I can remember uh, arguing with my history teacher in 11th grade. And I was kind of that kid that wasn't really a great student, but I raised my hand a lot and I spoke a lot and I gave my opinion. And it was often kind of to be an edgelord. Um, <laughs> but it's also because, you know, I did feel a certain way about things that were going on and school was one outlet to express it as a young kid. But I remember going, well, why do we give $3 billion a year to Israel when we have infrastructure in this country that's falling apart? And my teacher goes, well, 3% is only like, or 3 billion is only like 1% of our, of our budget. And I go, yeah, but that's still a lot of money. And she didn't have anything to say back to that and uh so you know i didn't know then uh what i know now but let's see um probably some of the first major red pills were learning about uh the war in syria for me and then um discovering people like um scott horton and ryan dawson and uh reading things like antiwar.com um really showed me the extent of the things that we've done like bringing slavery back to libya after it was gone from north africa for over 150 years um hillary clinton's crusade to take out gaddafi in that area um siding with al-qaeda made you able in that to, to destabilize the region enough to where you could buy a human being for 400 dollars and you go, wait, this wasn't brought up in the presidential debate. This wasn't used against Hillary because the reason why is because the other candidates also can't talk about it. I think one of the things that resonated with, um, and I'm no Donald Trump supporter by any stretch of the imagination, um, but when he came out and said that the Iraq war was a terrible deal uh, and, you know, basically took down Jeb Bush and in the way that he did, in the way that he went after uh, some of those lies, the way the rest of the GOP was afraid to do, um, that was what gained him a lot of popularity with people, I believe, because at that point, people didn't support the the terror wars and they, they couldn't understand why um, Obama had not ended them and had continued them and even started several new conflicts. Um, so it, it resonates with the American people greatly, but then you know, as COVID is going on, I have all this time to research and read, and you're learning about these conflicts one by one. And then you see the presidential debates between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and they didn't even ask one question on foreign policy. That foreign policy was not even in the discussion, yet it's the largest part of our budget, yet it's the biggest uh, national security threat it's the biggest thing that takes away our freedoms, one of the biggest environmental polluters, yet they don't even talk about it. So for me, that goes enough is enough. Any movement, any political movement that I want to be involved in has to be anti-war. And being anti-war to me is more important than 
anything else and whether you're libertarian or or conservative or progressive i don't care if you're anti-war and seriously anti-war not just in rhetoric then i will bolster your voice and support you yeah uh and there's a lot you know um i, I couldn't agree more and that, that that's obviously you know a wide open invitation to all the greens i know um shout out to matthew ho if you're listening out there i know he, he was a guest <laughs> i had a while back nice he ran for the green party um and he's just an all-around great guy and there's a lot of, like yeah I, I think there's a miss not a misconception but for all of the libertarians listening too i mean there's only you know when i when i'm putting when i'm when the people are protesting or there are people out there at least in maryland who they all it, it, it all they almost it bothers me sometimes how much they put climate first or these other issues that they're tied to militarism and for me it's the militarism and the war that should be central but uh, there are a lot of people out there that still care about these things that are coming from your left your co- I, I work with I've worked with code pink people like I said um and you know it's also reminding me there's a great fella name's gonna escape me I'm not gonna search for it right now but works in Maryland on uh it's one of the central shakers on like um PFAS these uh these different chemicals that these uh chemicals that are used mainly in fire retardants and fire extinguishers on bases um and how they but getting them removed getting them restricted from use on bases because they're one of these forever chemicals that are that are bioaccumulating um but yeah there are great people that we can work with to rein this in uh, out there who do you know they they're, they're concerned about the environment that are concerned about the environment kind of first yeah i was at the rage against the war machine rally in dc in february okay and there was all different kinds of uh political backgrounds there and it didn't matter it it really doesn't matter what your position on trans bathrooms are or or abortion or any of that when you consider that we're edging ourselves closer to world war three in in ukraine or uh in taiwan with china why does any of those like all of the other issues could be sorted out over a span of decades and and debated about and all that but we don't have time like the issue is too pertinent i i don't even really read fiction books anymore because it's like we we don't live in that time where you can lollygag around and and well rome burns you know I think that this is a pivotal moment in human civilization uh, where not only Americans, but pe- the world as a whole has to find out who we are, what we want to be, um, what vision of humanity can we unite around. And are we as Americans seriously going to unite around the idea of the United States calling the shots forever in our lifetimes and not taking into account uh, other countries where billion, billions of people live and their security interests and uh, their local concerns and things like that. You know, I, I think it, it, it's it's preposterous. And I, I see a bunch of people that uh, around me in New York that are really concerned about Republicans undermining democracy or something like that. Or, uh, you know, pe- say the same thing about the, the Democrats, sure. But how about the unconstitutional wars that we've waged 
Uh, you know, every war you can argue since World War II has not been a direct, a direct uh, declaration of war. So is therefore unconstitutional. I also, you know, worked on the War Powers Resolution, and uh, Matt Gates is doing a bunch of great uh, work in the uh, Congress right now, trying to pass different War Powers Resolutions. Uh, well, I think Somalia was the most recent one. Uh, Yemen was before that, and you know, these are things that I feel like everyone can get behind, and should be getting way more attention than they get now. Yeah, and you know, I and. You're you're remind you're making me think about the fact that like it, this hat it, it really it's very easy it's almost too big and too scary to think about that it's it's very easy to put away this fear of the nuclear of nuclear war breaking out it's I don't know even what to compare it to but you know it's not the first time in my life it's pro- I, there's been at least three times I I, I coach a lacrosse team teenage kids are you know kind of silly and they get wrapped up in things and they see things but they also know that i was in the military and they'll come to me and they'll ask like that you know when when the ukrainian war started off and when donald trump was um saber rattling with uh north korea and there was one other occasion too where kids have come up to me and been like is there going to be a nuclear war and that's you know what that does in my mind's eye is it's this low-key in the back I, I in the back of people's minds, at least for me, or the way some people think, especially younger people, it's it shortens your time horizons. It's a let you know to me, this idea that everything could just come falling down tomorrow. It's it's lowering your time preference. It's almost like, well, there's a finance you know, they're inflating the economy away. You might as well spend it all now. You might you know, if there's gonna if there's this threat and I, I kid you not, there's been a few times where I've just thought to myself, especially since the Ukraine war started, you know, that I might get up one, like, I've, I've literally more than once thought to myself, maybe we should start sleeping in the basement in case something happens, you know, yeah. where, you know, we've got a bedroom in the, ba- I'm in the bed, I'm in the bedroom basement right now. And I'm like, you know, maybe it'd be a little safer if we were sleeping downstairs so we could, you know, make it through the initial shockwave, mm-hmm. you know, or because you know we're not that far from dc here and yeah. uh there's plenty of military bases around ba- military complex stuff around baltimore and um sitting there and, or just kind of when the sun's coming up and I'm, I'm just cresting when i'm coming over this one street that faces to the east uh on my way to work and i'm thinking what if, what if you know what if one day one of these days that's uh that's a not the sun what if there's a second sun that uh, suddenly flashes in front of me and that's it. And, and and it's it should be more terrifying to me. That thought should be more terrifying to me than it is. You know what I mean? I kind of think it and I move on because it's too big and too scary. Yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? You but can't... it's plausible and it could happen and it really, the way things are going and what we're doing and how stupid our government is, it could happen tomorrow and everyone is just, getting into the muck of these stupid arguments between between the two parties and not thinking and not thinking a pox on anyone who even wants to play with it, play this game and we only control you know there's always this butt russia stuff i'm sorry i'll i'll, I'll wrap up I'll, I'll yeah no no you, but there's this fine. butt russia or you know thing where but you know or butt china it's like well we only could you know there's only one part, lever that we even have a the tiniest little sliver of control over 
and that's damning the Republican and Democratic parties to hell and and getting somebody in power who doesn't want to be anywhere near the nuclear button you know yeah i don't know i mean sorry sorry but i i, I the apologies to any republicans or democrats who are listening <laughs> but we we need somebody somewhere in power that wants to to take that that button and put it away you know um yeah you can't because... live with the uh, the constant fear of nuclear war. You kind of do have to put it out of your mind a little bit. We don't do the duck and cover drills that used to happen in the 50s and 60s where people you know, just in the middle of school would have to hide under their desk for a couple minutes to simulate what it would be like in a nuclear confrontation. But uh, it doesn't make the threat of it any less real. Um, I wrote an article on my Substack called The End of the Arms Control Era, and it basically talks about since Putin uh, a few months ago pulled out of the New START Treaty, there is no active arms control treaties between the United States and Russia, between the two largest nuclear powers in the world. There is no treaties between them that talks about limiting the amount of nuclear warheads or anti-ballistic missiles or short and medium range ballistic missiles, none of it. And if people think that's not a big deal, um, I would point to the incident in January 25th, 1995, where there was a Norwegian missile exercise that was detected by the uh, Russian air defense system. And the trajectory was on the course for Moscow. So it's supposed to simulate what uh, nuclear war between Russia and the United States would look like post USSR collapse, mind you. And at the time, uh, Boris Yeltsin was handed a briefcase with the nuclear codes in them. And in a matter of minutes, he had to make a decision. Now, he didn't know at the time that it was just a, a, a test. Um, but because of the um, INF treaty that was signed between Gorbachev and Reagan, uh, there were no short-range or medium-range uh, ballistic missiles. So it gave Yeltsin, say, 30 minutes to decide uh, to go to nuclear war rather than five minutes of what we he would have had to decide because that would be how long it would take for a short-range ballistic missile in Romania or Poland to reach Moscow. And because he had that extra buffer time, well, actually, we can't say for sure, but he had an extra 25 minutes that could have saved the fate of humankind because we had an arms control treaty in place. Now we don't have one in place. We withdrew from the ABM treaty in 2002 or three from the terror wars. Um, we let the open skies treaty expire. Um, we, we have withdrawn out of multiple treaties uh, have said that Russia has not been keeping up to them. We, there's an excuse for every treaty, but at the end of the day, it is in the United States' hands that we have no active measures to protect us against a nuclear war. And I don't think people talk about that enough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. That it really... the, the, the Those things just lapsed, and nobody seems to expect... I, if anything, you know, I listen to a fair amount of military think tank podcasts or, you know, um, 
mainly the proceedings podcast where they and you know, they have these discussions about if anything it means that they can they, they they're glad to be unshackled is the terrifying thing they're glad to be free of it so they can invest they can you know renew the the nuclear triad yeah you know it's like they're, they're happy to be they're happy to and that and honestly i think that's what's the sickening part is that's what's really driving it the sickening part is it's really you know your raytheon and your lockheeds that that buy ads on the mainstream media in order to control them you know and put money into congressional coffers that are saying that are the the whole reason we're getting closer to this has nothing i mean yes our like gerontocracy is failing us but more to you know to your original what you originally kind of were thinking is is it's just base corruption you know some of these people in leadership might be doing something to renew these treaties if they weren't just so corrupt and so worried about getting more campaign money that they're happy that, that they're happy to you know sure we'll build some more nukes you know yeah we're gonna we'll upgrade the nukes for a couple of trillion dollars of someone else's money like not not even caring or thinking about they don't you know yeah and this Sorry. is against i mean even someone like reagan had the wisdom to to do something like the inf treaty which was historic and really reduced the danger that the world was facing at any given moment drastically um you had dwight d eisenhower it was his idea to do the open skies treaty a treaty where you can fly over enemy nations that have also signed the treaty to ensure that they are keeping up with their uh inspections and are not building up uh military stockpiles that they're not supposed to be building up so it was up until 2020 we could have russian planes fly over the u.s and vice versa and uh but there's just too much paranoia for that now i guess um and yeah it's it's exactly like you said where they're just using this as an ex it's it's good for them to not have arms control treaties um it's good for them to expand nato up to russia's front doorstep uh this is a great example you might not know but there is a guy bruce jackson he was the vice president um of lockheed martin and in the 90s he founded the and led the u.s committee to expand nato uh so you have the the uh vice president of lockheed martin heading a committee to expand nato which saw uh in the in the early uh in the late 90s and early 2000s a bunch of new states uh join nato and i was explaining this to someone at at uh at dinner yesterday um i was like imagine if you could uh canada was in a military alliance with russia how would the united states respond we would go to war over that almost without question and his eyes kind of lit up and that's that sort of the uh american exceptionalism propaganda you know uh uh for for them but not for us kind of thing um and actually the uh, a neighbor of the united states did almost go into a military alliance with a foreign power and we did go to war over it it was uh mexico in world war one 
because Mexico uh, almost uh, signed a military alliance with Germany. Uh, that was a big reason why we had joined the war in 1917, which we had vowed to stay out of. Um, so it just goes to show that we wouldn't accept missiles that could hit DC in, in five minutes, uh, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, like putting uh, nuclear weapons in Cuba, or we wouldn't accept a military alliance uh, with foreign powers that went right up to our doorstep. And uh, it's so easy to see, and it's, you know, I, it's it's really my mission to to get the word out to more people, especially people that don't know about these things, like like you or I do, because we really are preaching to the choir. And I hope people that don't listen uh, to these things normally can hear stuff like this and start to slowly change their mind about what political things to prioritize and what not, um, because it's more important than ever, man. Yeah. Um, and well, first of all, you had me for a second. When I was thinking who, I was sitting, who on the border almost made out. I would, I think yeah. I like to think I know a little history and, and, and it's so obvious, but you don't, when you, sometimes things are right there in front of you until somebody, but they're, they don't make sense in that way until somebody phrases them. Yeah. You know, so that was a great one. I'm going to use that. Um, and it, you also reminded me, you know, what has been really interesting, at least for me, I, um, had some co-workers I was talking to just today they were um they were looking one of them was looking over Matt Taibbi's piece on this Russia on Russiagate and the other one started reading the actual report and both of them were this is stuff maybe you and I feel like we I I don't know I feel like I've known Russiagate was a hoax from day one because you I don't know about you but I was listening to Scott Horton and and all the other people that were looking at it critically from day one and, and Matt Taibbi and Aaron Mate people that were skeptical and now they're seeing it in black and white and being like literally guys holy holy crap this is this is worse than i expected the the, the entire election was rigged in 2016 you're you know you like um they were doing everything they could that you know they, they were shocked shocked to find this out which is you know it's funny it was almost funny to me but i used it as the opportunity forget exactly how i how i uh, made this transition to point out that like you know we we would never actually you know it's it's amazing to me it still astounds me and i'm gonna sound ridiculous saying this now and i'm uh, you know putin apologist whatever get it out get it out of your system you know uh not you but you know right dear <laughs> listener uh anyone hate listening this like what I what I used to say was astounding up until the Ukrainian war um, was the amount of forbearance, honestly, that Putin had shown. I mean, you you know, you're talking about making an alliance on your borders, but it's 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 much more than that. It's to me the biggest one that stood out was during the Syrian war. Um, during the Syrian war, you know, Russia was providing support to Assad. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I keep trying to mute it when my dog starts acting up, but uh, no worries, you're good. <laughs> um, yeah, during the war in Syria, you know, a Russian fighter pilot was downed, and they sent in some helicopters to try to rescue him before he got beheaded. And there we are providing tow missile. There's you know you can still find it on YouTube. There's a video, clear as day, of uh. And Al Nusra member, uh, 
with a tow missile given to him courtesy of the CIA. And those things do not go without an advisor. Somewhere, somewhere very close by was a CIA advisor that knew exactly who had that missile and what they were doing with it. Downing a rescue, ho- blowing up a rescue helicopter with an American-made missile. And could you just imagine for a second if right now an American pilot, you know, instead of a drone, we have a, we have a lot of aircraft. If an, if an American aircraft fell into, you know, conflict conflicted territory over Ukraine, you know, we're observing from a distance. We're not flying into Ukraine. But if an American aircraft somehow fell into conflicted territory and a Russian missile was used to destroy the rescue helicopter... It would be, I mean, the, we wouldn't, the amount of forbearance he showed in that is, it, it, and there were so many other incidents. I mean, Wagner Group is all over the media now. How many people know that in Syria, a U.S. artillery barrage killed 150 Wagner tr- soldiers in a convoy? You know what I mean? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, now, granted, they're Russian. They're, they're every bit, you know, they're in this, that deniability area of contractors but those kinds of things if 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 150 blackwater contractors working in um ukraine right now were hit by an artillery barrage you you better believe you know um we 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 just there's we're the hot-blooded ones here it's the thing to recognize the americans are hot-blooded and quick to war you know uh, that's not to say this. None of this justifies anything that you, Trump or not Trump, Putin has done. God, they right. got me thinking Putin and Trump are one of the same. <laughs> but but that's all to say, uh, there's a moment of hope here for me that there are a good number of kind of people that almost were, you know, I hate uh, I want to phrase this in a kindly way in case someday they listen to this podcast, but um, they would never have questioned the Russia Gate narrative in real time. I don't think, you know what I mean? But now that they're questioning it and the scales are kind of falling from people's eyes, is there anyone like in, like that in your life right now that was a Russiagate, a blue and on believer, you know what I mean? That Trump and yeah. Russia were one and the same. Um, <laughs> if there's anyone out there in your life that maybe is having a moment of questioning that because of the latest report from about the FBI's malfeasance, uh, this might be the opportunity to bank shot that into maybe we need to seek peace, you know, to me at least kind of insert, you know, well, maybe some of these other things you've been told about Russia are wrong, you know, maybe this is, you know, of a piece because there's people out there that wanted to push towards conflict. I love blue and on. I, I'm I'm really going to start using that. That's just the best <laughs> best term for it. I, I don't uh, know who I stole it from, but it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really, yeah, I, I grew up in a very, um, you know, I did, I grew up doing progressive activism. So I basically know a bunch of people that were politically involved pretty heavily that sort of made it a huge part of their identity in their lives that um, spent years pushing Russiagate narratives and now just very pathetically have not much to say about it at all and still repeat the same lines that Republicans solely and exclusively Republicans are the ones that are undermining our democracy. And um, 
like you said, hopefully it's a wake up call for pe for people with open eyes to look at the how this Russiagate theory was built off of a blatant sort of Russia phobia that exists um, in the deep in the American conscious that we had spent 50 years being ingrained in our minds that Russia is the bad guys. And even after the Soviet Union collapsed and fell to pieces and the Russian people and the people in the former Soviet republics went through a tremendous amount of suffering that we can't even begin to imagine here in the United States. I mean, the life expectancy in Russia fell by 10 years in some places, rampant inflation. Um, and this is a lot because of um, American-led think tanks that imposed, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with shock therapy, the idea of turning a, uh, a, a command economy into a market economy. If it happens very rapidly, it ends up just um, being terrible for, for common people where you had the rise of Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs that sort of set the stage for some of the corruption that you see in places like Russia and Ukraine today. Um, but hopefully it's a bridge to wake people up to some of the history that has happened since 1991 um, between Russia and the West and understand that this is not the um especially putin when putin got into power in 99 2000 since then this is not the some sort of um hitlerian uh psychopath that has no restraint that wants to see the old soviet empire there is nothing that would suggest that all the people saying that putin if they don't stop him in ukraine would push into poland and moldova and and into eastern europe there is no history that even suggests that he would do something like that if there if you do see a sort of and you know as wrong as the ukrainian invasion was in my eyes i think that never should happen i think there's a bunch of other things that putin could have done um i'm not in his position so who can say but um, I, I, there's just no evidence for this sort of, uh, he just wants to expand his empire to the point, uh, where he wants to govern a bunch of non-Russian people, uh, and, and, and re be some sort of Stalin-esque Hitler, whatever people want to compare him to. It comes from a blatant misunderstanding of, of the policies of the Russian government and of the man himself. Um, so I, I always encourage people to to read about the the fall of the Soviet Union and what happened in places like Georgia and what happened in places like Chechnya and in Serbia and in, in you know in the breakdown of Yugoslavia and all those things because there's the Western perspective and then there's just what actually happened a lot of a lot of the time. Uh, you know, and actually maybe this will bring it full circle. Um, another there, there's a, just an interesting moment happening because another. A friend of mine who um, I was talking to just yesterday, uh, who's very much uh, in the in the nah, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but very pro-Ukrainian, uh, very much you know seeing Putin as the as the evil doer here, and he's not entirely wrong, you know. 
Um, but it's funny. Um, he brought up, and I don't know if you're familiar, uh, you know, this has been a long time ago for you, but in the initial uh, invasion of Afghanistan, there, we used, an, a, you know, the big chat, one of the biggest challenges getting to and from Afghanistan was having a base to fly in and out from. Uh, and for a while, it was most recently people, you know, it's a long flight, but people, we were staging in Qatar and Kuwait and then flying onwards. Prior to that, there was a base in Kyrgyzstan called Manas, a former Soviet military air force base. And that was an uncomfortable situation. And prior to that was a base that we called K2. Um, I never went there through there. This was like between 2001, 2005. It's in Uzbekistan, but it was a former Soviet base. That was granted, we were granted the use of by Putin. And my friend brought it up as a negative against Putin. You know, he let us, stay, you know, we were, get, you know, did you know there was this military base that was highly contaminated that we used at the beginning of the, the you know, war in Afghanistan? And I was like, well, I was, I did know uh, it was highly contaminated. And the first thing I said, and to bring it full circle is, well, you know, the uh, most contaminated places in the United States are military bases, too. So it's not surprising that a Soviet Air Force base was pretty contaminated. Yeah. You know, um, uh, just to put it in perspective, I'm sh I, I imagine the Soviet base is probably a little bit more contaminated than anything we had. But, you know, um, but he was kind of putting it in like the Putin man bad category that and I was like and I just I twisted around into yeah, he, he was the first one to call us after 9-11 and say, um, you can use our facilities to fight this problem. You know what I mean? And that's not, you know, not this, this isn't a referendum on the war or anything in Afghanistan right. or any of those. It's just to say there's, there's these interesting moments happening right now. And I don't know why, but it's a great opportunity if you're out there to start trying to red pill those of your friends that are convinced that Putin is this... Hitlerian evil um, who must be stopped because you know I, and as you were speaking I was thinking it's all one of these days somebody is going to give the what if speech the Ron Paul what if speech about our but not about the war on terrorism but the proxy war we've been fighting for years against the Russians hmm. what if in 1991 when the wall fell we destroyed NATO what it and, and banished it to the winds what if we didn't do shock therapy and take and use this opportunity to take advantage of the Russian people, but instead, you know, demilitarize and, you know, turned our swords into plowshares? What if, you know, where would we be now? Where would the situation with Ukraine be now? What would people in North Africa or all over the third world be desperate for fertilizer to grow the next year's food supply if we hadn't gone through this endless progression of escalating tension with a country that was on its knees, you know, um, somebody will put together that what if speech. It should have been at the Rage Against War rally, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a new riff of it, um, because it's the truth. Yeah, um, the the what if speech and the what happens when we don't change course speech. Yeah. Because as much of a catastrophe as all of that foreign policy was there's still the future to look forward to. And uh, I, I, I do hope historians write that, that what if uh, speech or that what if book. Um, but also we have to focus on how much better the world could be 
if we did change course. And I, I'm pro-Ukrainian in the sense that I don't want Ukrainians being killed in this senseless war. And this is what I think a lot of people that um, prop up the Ukrainian war cause don't understand is that in a war of attrition, even with NATO's backing, they're not going to win a war against Russia based on their objectives. They're not going to push Russia out of Crimea back to its 1991 borders. Um, and if people are saying, well, that's a pro-Putin talking point, or are we see, you know, ceding Hitler the Sudetenland or something like that, um, or, or I guess Czechoslovakia would be the better example. Um, it's it's not that at all. It's it's so foreign from something like that. Like the the population of Russia is like 150 million almost right now. The population of Ukraine, when you take out all the refugees and the part of Ukraine that Russia's already occupied, it's like 24, 26 million right now probably you're not going to win that war in a war of attrition and all you're doing in the meantime is killing an entire generation of young men by pushing them away from peace and towards a proxy war not because you care about ukrainians but because you want to use this as an attempt to weaken russia as a as a geostrategic tool you're using human beings as the meat grinders it's famously called you know and um, it's so insane. You can watch the Western bias on this whole story, this larger story we're talking about, but you can watch it up to the, the microcosm today when you see things like all of the headlines of mainstream media talking about how Bakhmut has not fallen to the Russians and the Ukrainians are making ground in Bakhmut. Meanwhile, Bakhmut has completely and entirely fall into the Russians as of May 20th. This is something that both the most well-respected Ukrainian and Russian telegram channels confirm, yet somehow the mainstream media is in complete denial of this. I mean, it's really amazing to see. It's bizarre. It's surreal. It feels like a fantasy world, you know? Um, I uh, There was, uh, I think it was Terrence McKenna who said, the cost of sanity in society comes with a certain level of alienation and you have to go a little crazy when you see everything around you uh painting a picture to be one way but you know through your research and everything that you you know in your case your personal experience you know it to be something entirely different and um, that's why i think it's so important to have these conversations to talk with young people uh, I try to I try to divert away from things like uh, like domestic issues, like we were talking about earlier, like abortion and gun control, and talk to them about war and empire. And when you do, you find out something really alarming, something that the the status quo uh, really wants to suppress is that most people are in agreement that we don't want to be the policemen of the world, that we don't want to send people to die for Taiwan or uh, in Iraq for some cause, we don't even know what. Why do we even have troops in Somalia? As uh, Donald Trump asked his advisors, you know, it, it, the list goes on. And uh, William Blake has a great quote. Uh, the, 
If the truth could be told so that it would be understood, it would be believed. The message is good enough. It just has to be heard by more people. And the reason why it's not is an active campaign of suppression. Um, but I think that with the right movement, the right amount of art, the right amount of young people taking aboard the cause, you know, it really can't just be old libertarian white dudes. It has to be like in the 1960s, you had hot girls. You had hot girls spreading the don't go to war in Vietnam message. And it was more popular than ever. And I think uh, the institution saw a danger in that sort of a social and cultural movement that identified itself as being anti-war. So they did a lot of things then to suppress it. And I think we can learn from the counterculture movement in the 60s um, to make this something that's topical again, to make it something that people should care about. People of all different backgrounds and um, associations um, people of all different political backgrounds, genders, sexes, ideologies, all of that. Um, it's, a, it's a terrifically uniting thing when you take the biggest existential threat. Like, it's it's our Hitler today and, and unite people against it. And uh, we do it because we're angry. We do it because we have this disposition. We do it because of the what if question, because we know there's a better world on the other side of this. And uh, even if it seems like we're going up against the most powerful forces in the world, that should only motivate us more to stand up against the Overton window and uh, and, and to push these things in a favorable direction. Uh, because if there's one thing about our ancestors and the history of humanity that, that it teaches us about ourselves is that we don't descend from fearful people. We don't descend from people that gave up when they were the underdogs. We descended from people that fought for a better world against great forces at times and one and the fact that we're here is a testament to that here here uh, i couldn't say it better so we'll we'll wrap it there excellent joe i really appreciate it thanks man thanks for having me please uh, really drop any, plug, any plugs one more time and uh we'll call it a night yeah i just uh my Substack is probably uh the most important one www.openbookreport.com and uh, you can uh, check me out on Twitter. That's Joe J. Shanley on Twitter. J-O-E-J-S-H-A-N-L-E-Y. Um, thanks again, Scott, for having me so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'll be listening to your podcast. <laughs> thanks so much. Uh, and yeah, this will be in the show notes. I've, I've, I've noted, I took down a, quite several of your Substack articles we mentioned in particular and a few other items and they'll all be in the show notes. Thanks so much, Joe. Have a great cool, night. Man. All right. Good night. Take care. Peace. Thanks for listening to another episode. Please use the hashtag why I am anti-war or anti-war to uh, share the podcast. Please contact me by email. I need new guests to keep things going. I'll keep reaching out. Uh, and uh, please check out the show notes where you can find some links to some of the sources, um, especially Stephen Semler and uh, who helped Joe um, become anti-war. Peace.